Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Now, this is the place where if you listen uh, month in, month out, week in, week out, you'll know that leading authors explore how they get their ideas through a series of objects that they bring into the studio. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, and today we're joined by an author and illustrator whose debut novel, Wonder, has been phenomenally successful. 15 million sold at last count. On bestseller lists since it was published seven years ago, it's also been made into a film a few years ago, 2017, starring Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. My guest's latest work, White Bird, is the first graphic novel on this podcast and it is just beautiful. It's so beautifully done and so mesmerising that my 10-year-old daughter started crying when she was halfway through this book. But I don't know, that's not a great place to start a conversation <laughs> saying that you made my daughter cry. Oh, oh, I Jay hear Palacio. a lot. Yeah, I bet you do. Wonder, you must yeah, have got that yeah, with, I do. Uh, with Wonder. So it's cool. But you don't set out to make young children cry. I want no. to make that very clear. No, I don't. Because that would make you a very strange and odd person. <laughs> what do you set out to do? Um, I set out to tell a story. I know that I love hearing stories, whether you know I'm watching movies or reading books or uh, in any form I get them. My first instinct as an author is that I do want to move people through real ways of telling a story of characters that reveal themselves. But I definitely want people to be moved. How important was your husband's family history in White Bird? It was really important. And my mother-in-law, who has passed away, her grandparents and her entire, you know, that branch of the family died in, in the war. And that kind of that kind of loss, I think, lives on in generations of people. Um, you know, it, there was never a time in my husband's life when he did not know about the Holocaust. And... I thought it's so strange that there could be millions of kids in the world growing up with this sort of intact innocence, not knowing anything about this terrible time in history. And yet there are millions of kids growing up like my husband with sort of a visceral understanding, a generational grief um, about that time. So that's one of the reasons I wrote White Bird. It was a way of honoring my mother-in-law, even though this isn't her story. Uh, I because really their family were from the Polish Jewish community. They were from the Polish this. Jewish community. In fact, it was through this story that I'm the one that ended up digging out, digging up all this sort of family like, oh, do you, you know, I, I went on Ancestry.com. I sort of was able to piece together a lot of the narrative uh, for my, my husband's family. And um, I really believe that um, the Holocaust should not fall on the shoulders of only Jewish people to remember and acknowledge. And right now it does feel like that's what's happening. Certainly anti-Semitism is not something that only Jewish people should have to fight. Just like racism isn't something that only people of color should be aware of and have to fight. You know, it, it really falls on all of us, whether we're directly involved or not. Uh, so so really, I, I wrote White Bird from that point of view as somebody who wanted to tell a story that would illuminate and and be a good first gentle introduction to those darker themes for kids that are 10 or 11 years old and might not know anything about the Holocaust. How do you get people who are not already open-minded enough to read White Bird and to understand White Bird? I was thinking a lot about the opportunity that my platform 
gave me, uh, you know, with wonder. Thank goodness uh, I have a wide readership. And they're fans of, uh, you know, the message of kindness. And so when I was thinking about all these dilemmas that we're in now, I was thinking, what's the best use of my time as a writer and as an artist to do what I can to um, raise the bar a little bit on sort of the the conversations people are having and and to help kids understand the world we're living in today. So I wrote White Bird with the idea of, um, yes, kind of, you know, shedding some light on this time period. And and again, it's a it's a it's a first introduction. It's not like, you know, there are no concentration camps in this. This is about a girl that goes into hiding and uh, she fears being found and being deported. I mean, you know, the 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 subtext isn't that uh, hidden here. I mean, it's it's it could be about anyone living in the United States right now who is an illegal alien, for instance. And so it felt very relevant. But if at the end of reading the story, they're curious to find out more, they can. And and I provide the glossary afterwards and and then hopefully, the, you know, with the further reading and the diary of Anne Frank and maybe Mouse and other stories out there, um, they will have a deeper understanding. Let's get into your first object that you've okay. brought with us. Um, you've chosen a whittled wooden bird. Yes. Tell us about the wooden bird then. Well, um, in White Bird, uh, the character of Julian, um, not the Julian from Wonder, actually, the, the, the Julien, the, the French Julian, the boy that befriends the young girl, Sarah Bloom, who uh, is a young Jewish girl who is forced to flee the Nazis and go into hiding. And, and Julien is her, is her friend and helps her. Um, at one point, he um, he knows that she's kind of a little obsessed with birds. I mean, she's an artist, and she has filled her sketchbook pages um, over the years with sketches of birds and stuff. And she he ends up whittling um, a little bird for her out of, out of you know out of wood, and he gives it to her. and And that object becomes one of her most uh, precious objects. She's a girl who has nothing, and yet this little bird, this little carved bird, becomes everything to her. Because it's, of course, symbolic of everything that she can't be. Yeah, including the the white bird of you know that symbolizes her childhood, her innocence, her her dreams, her hopes. Uh, in every way, that white bird, which is you know the the title of the book, is is her um, her freedom. Give us a sense, RJ, of how meticulous you were in getting this right visually. The time. The, the 1940s in a small town in France. I'm so glad you asked that, actually, because it's one of the things I'm the most proud of and it's one of the things that's hardest to convey. Um, you know, I when I started working on this, I... Um, you know, I, I, I was doing a lot of research the way one would if one were writing a historic novel. You have to research everything so that you know what the characters are are wearing and handling and, and, and doing and stuff. But you don't actually have to show the homework. You know, you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to describe everything in detail if it doesn't have anything to do with the story. But when you're drawing a graphic novel, you have to know how everything functions and what everything looks like. So... So, for instance, in if I had just written Whitebird as a novel, I could get away with saying, you know, Sarah opened the barn door. 
And and that's all anyone would need to hear. Like you could imagine that the reader would envision for themselves what the barn door looks like, and that's all they need. But when you're doing a graphic novel, you have to actually research what the barn door looks like because you have to depict it. So, I mean, you know, without getting too in too detailed here, I was deep in the woods in 1940 France. Like, okay, what did the windows look like? What did the, you know, what size were the buttons on her dress? What kind of scooter she would have ridden? Uh, you know, what kind of backpack she would have had to get a school? What kind of backpack? Yeah. All, I mean, every single detail had to be researched. And again, even though it didn't have anything to do with the rest of the story in terms of the narrative, because I knew that there would be some kid out there who would write me and say, you know, that's not what backpacks in 1938 France look like. Uh uh-uh, uh. I wasn't going to go down there. Did, did you? Revel in that level of geekery. Yes, I love doing research. It's my, uh, yeah, one of my favorite things. And you can get really, really deep into the woods, like, like really, like, okay, should I use this lantern? You know, which was, I mean, anyway, I, I, I get really geeky. And you ended up discovering more and more about what it was like to be Jewish at that time, mm-hmm. and some of the things you you wrote about. In White Bird, I mean, these scenarios, these are things that happened Mm -hmm. that you found out about after. So the story itself is a a fictional story, but it takes place within uh, very real uh, historical events. And some of the sort of minor characters who are featured throughout or inspired by real life heroes of that time period. So so the village in which Sarah lives is kind of fashioned on uh, Chambon, so uh, I can't even pronounce it, but <laughs> a, a village in France that was later honored as a righteous among nations for having harbored many, many Jewish refugees and, and, and kids who would hide in barns and um, were helped to escape. And the, uh, the pastor is is somewhat fashioned after a pastor that that you know helped rescue children. I wanted to bring in again, even though it's fictional. I wanted to sort of really draw from real life as much as possible. Again, going back to what we were talking about before, the idea of kindness at a time when being kind could cost you your life. Those are the choices that people made, and that, and that's that's the humanity that I believe in to save someone else's child, to save someone else's life, they stepped up. We're in dire times right now and people really need to step up and kind of put themselves out there. In the pages of White Bird, you see people making these decisions all the time. And surprisingly, some people you think are not doing the right thing Mm -hmm. and doing the right thing. And it's it's a fascinating book. Talking of doing the right thing, you've got an object there which is very much close to my palate, which is a chocolate cake. (laughs) Okay, I don't know. This is because you have a sweet tooth. You're trying to avoid type 2 diabetes. I don't know. But there is a picture of a chocolate cake, and that is relevant also to White Bird. There is. There's a scene in White Bird. um, And again, so so Julian is a little boy who um, rescues Sarah and um, hides her in his barn. And with the help of his two parents... Um, they they rest, they keep her safe, and uh, the his two a, a parents great personal risk to themselves. Yeah, as you personal, said. absolutely. Yeah. They could be caught and and killed at any at any point. So there's one scene in the book where she doesn't even realize it's her birthday, and they surprise her uh, with a chocolate cake. Now, having chocolate 
in that time was almost impossible. People had ration cards. People were starving. It's about what it took to be able to give this little girl who had nothing just a little taste of childhood. Do the illustrations have to follow the words always? I did them both at the same time. And again, in the beginning, I didn't know that I was, I I knew it was going to be a graphic novel, but I didn't know that I was going to be illustrating it. I knew that I was going to be laying it out, though. So I wrote the entire thing at the same time I sketched it all out, little thumbnail sketches. So I had laid the entire thing out, again, almost like it was, um, I I saw it as this little movie inside my head. So I knew it, it had a very cinematic quality to it. So in a way, it was easier for me to lay it out and draw it and write it at the same time. And the idea was I was going to give all my sketches to an illustrator and have them just do the graphic novel. And then I had done so much work on it already and I had all the whole, the whole thing laid out. I just thought, well, I might as well just draw it myself. You know, how hard could it be? And, and I'll tell you, it was really hard. Yeah, I had no idea. You're no stranger to illustration, though, <laughs> let's be honest. I don't know what I was thinking. I honestly, I, I thought I'd done most of the work and, and I guess I felt like if I handed it off to someone... Uh, you know, maybe I'm just a control freak. I just knew that they would sort of do their own thing. And, and I really had a very set concept of how um, of how to tell the story in a visual way. It moves us nicely onto your next object, which is a sketchbook. Mm-hmm. And that relates not only to the creation of Whitebird, but also to the character of Sarah Bloom herself. Yeah. You know. Well, she's an artist. Yeah. Uh, and she. Um, is this you? Is this semi autobiographical? You sketching away in class? I made her an artist. I made her the kind of kid that loves to doodle and draw and who hates math. And I, I guess that is me um, or was me at 12. You know, I also made her an artist because it was a literary device as a way of actually having her be able to leave the barn and know things that otherwise she wouldn't be able to know. So there is a little magical element to it, uh, which I thought was was important in telling the story to younger kids, you know, to keep it a little bit a little bit fanciful, a little bit, you know. Again, I'm always aware of, of the fact that even though adults read the book, my primary audience is that 9 and 10 and 11-year-old, and, and I feel like, you know, we have a deal. You read my book and, and, and trust me with it, and I will, I will give you something that, that, that I hope will will help you with your life surely now must have the bug to of graphic want to novels? do yeah no to, seriously no, no i'm not going to do another one I, I i can't imagine doing another one this was a lot Why? of work it was a lot of work. It was. There were you times searching French buttons from the nineteen thirties. No, 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 that was part the... was the fun part. The actual drawing, the execution of it. Uh, it's it's panel after panel after panel of um, the you know the continuity and drawing the same thing over and over again. Because you know there are panels where there are just two people talking, and you have to sort of do them from this angle and that angle and. You know, if this were a movie or an animated movie, you know, if this were Disney Studios, you would have a whole team of people sort of drawing the different frames and the panels and, and all of that. And but it was just me. <laughs> and 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 there were times, you know, I was doing this like from from nine to nine every day for months. And uh, it felt at times like I, I remember I was only halfway through it and I just could not believe that I still had a whole other half of the book to do. And it was too late to give it to someone else. I had to, you know, and it was, 
I mean, like I'm, writing essays at college. Yeah, well, when you've done a couple of thousand, you just sort of realise, go, oh, and then you press word count, and your yeah, heart sinks yes, when you realise that's exactly what. It, or eating, <laughs> I, I, you know, and again, it was it was a work of love, and I love doing it, so I'm not complaining. But it was like eating a delicious plate of spaghetti, and you know how spaghetti sometimes you're filled after just like half the plate, and you look at your plate though, and it looks like it's still you just have so much more to eat. <laughs> And that's what it felt like. I still had such a big plate of spaghetti to eat. How much of this was created in an illustration sense digitally? So were you there with an, was it design, iPads, all of that? It was all done. Um, luckily, there's a there's a great program called Procreate on the iPad, which I, d- hadn't, I did not know how to use before. Uh, so there was a bit of a learning curve. But had I not had that program, I never could have done this within the year and a half time that it took me to do because it, it facilitated the drawing of it. If I'd had to do it as, you know, basically in the old fashioned way, which is, you know, sketching it on paper and then it, it would have been a, a huge labor. This this made it a lot easier. Basically, Basically, I did the entire thing. I drew the entire thing on the iPad with the iPencil, which was really fantastic. I had someone named Kevin Chap ink it, which basically means that um, he took my sketches and, and gave it a very consistent line, which needs to be done. And then I took it back and did all the coloring and the lighting. And, and, and then I finally brought it back into Photoshop, where I added the textures and uh, did a lot of the other stuff to it. So you just want to go back to straight writing, I sitting just, there yeah, on a laptop ab- and, and tapping the keys. Absolutely. <laughs> or maybe, you know, a 32-page picture book or whatever, because it's a thick book. That's yeah, a is. lot of panels. Really and you is. have to realize every single panel is its own illustration, is its own piece of art. So um, anyway, <laughs> it was, I'm not complaining, but it was really hard. I've <laughs> so, got this image in my head. I don't know if you remember those old Inspector Cluzo movies where ever Inspector Dreyfus, who was his boss, heard the word Cluzo, he would twitch, <laughs> right? And now I'm just wondering if anyone says graphic novelty, yeah, you'll start kind of twitching. twitch a little bit, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's really funny. And it's it's. I really wanted to do this as a graphic novel. And I'm, I have no regrets because I, I think beautiful. it's, thank you, thank it's you. I mean, beautiful. it's, had I known at the start what would be involved, um, I'm not sure I would have taken it on. <laughs> I, I interviewed Tom York from Radiohead about the first yeah. movie soundtrack he had done. Really? And, and it's almost an exact <laughs> replicate of his response about, yeah, no, it was it was good. I, I loved the <laughs> yeah, end product, yeah. but I'm not sure I want to do that ever again. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's funny. <laughs> um, let's get on to um, an object which I can't see how it's related to Whitebird because it's an astronaut's helmet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I have read White Bird, and not at any point have I seen a reference to astronauts. There's not. Okay, good. Oof. Yeah, yeah, Oof, yeah. That was there that were was no good. astronauts. Good for uh, okay. World War Two. That'd but, be your second graphic novel. Yeah, but uh, the astronaut helmet, as you know, is probably uh, you know it's wonder. Yeah, um, and Augie Pullman. Uh, that that's his big symbol. That's yeah. the symbol of Augie Pullman, and always will be my little Augie. Have you got any props from the movie? Were you? Were you did you go down to the set? I did. I got to. I got to hang out with everybody. It was really an amazing, uh, like ten days, two weeks. And, and how uh, were the stars? I mean, what did they say to you? Did you, did was, you go and hang out in their Winnebago eating sushi? Uh, n- not sushi, but I did. I I got to hang out with them. I really did. I I, I got to sort of hang out. Uh, and 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 talk with Julia Roberts and her kids and and um, 
and uh, and Owen Wilson and and Mandy Patinkin and and you know all of them. It was it, and the kids were amazing. Um, Jacob Tremblay and his his mom and dad and um, it was very much uh, like like camp. It was really a dream come true. First of all, because I love movies, and so here I was on a movie. It takes hundreds of people to make a movie, and every once in a while, I'd like think, okay, all of these people are gainfully employed in trying to bring the world that I imagine to life. To know that, for instance, it's somebody's job to decide what would go on the refrigerator door of the Pullman residence, because that was in the background. And so some there's a set decorator. <laughs> that puts French buttons into context <laughs> quite frankly. It does. <laughs> but they had 100 people doing it. That's a good point. Well made. Yeah. But it, there was like all these people. There was somebody whose job it was to design that astronaut helmet. There was somebody whose job it was to recreate a brownstone from New York City in a warehouse and, and all the details that go into it. And, and, oh, I remember the production designer calling me once. She said, do you think they would have a yellow sofa or a blue sofa? I was like, oh, yellow for sure. And, you know, so all of these every day there were decisions that were being made about, you know, what the Pullmans would have in their house. And um, seeing Augie's room, for instance, the first time I saw Augie's room and and saw the books on his bookshelves. And, and all of those are conscious decisions that are made by people. And that was the most amazing thing, just to know. It was, I mean, yes, meeting the stars was great. How emotional did you get? I, you know, there were, there were times when I got very emotional just at the thought that this world, um, you know, there was, you know, I wrote Wonder. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, but, um, you know, I had a nine-to-five job when I was writing Wonder, raising two kids, you know, my family. The only time of day that I could find to write was between the hours of midnight and three in the morning. So I would get up at 12 and uh, and write till about three in the morning. And I did that every night for, again, about a year and a half. That's how long it took me to write I'm Wonder. Sorry, how dangerous was the school run? Well, you've done like three and a half hours sleep. I'm just wondering, like, everyone's driving in different directions when they we say didn't have I cars. Took it. it was a okay. we walk. We okay, yeah, okay, yeah, good. exactly. Okay, I'm glad to know. Um, but it was the only time, and and uh, that I could write that it was it was quiet, you know, and and um, and so you know, so the the world of wonder kind of came to me in these in the middle of the night, and so there were times when I would be on the movie set years later, and thinking, you know, and 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 I could remember writing a scene. Being alone in my little my little tiny office in at two in the morning writing this scene and no one else in the entire planet knew this scene or these characters or what I was writing. And yet here we were several years later, you know, about to make a movie where, you know, people would come would, would see exactly what was in my head. It's very weird and it's very humbling and it's great. Well, we have a clip from Wonder in this. Uh, we hear from the main character, Augie, who's been given a tour of his new school by Julian, who features in both books. Dude, let him go inside so he can check it out, Jack Will told him, pushing past Julian and opening the door. Go inside if you want, Julian said. It was the first time he looked at me. I shrugged and walked over to the door. Julian moved out of the way quickly, like he was afraid I might accidentally touch him as I passed by him. Nothing much to see, Julian said, walking in after me. He started pointing to a bunch of stuff around the room. That's the incubator. 
That big black thing is the chalkboard. These are the desks. These are chairs. Those are the Bunsen burners. This is a gross science poster. This is chalk. This is the eraser. I'm sure he knows what an eraser is, Charlotte said, sounding a little like Via. How would I know what he knows, Julian answered. Mr. Tushman said he's never been to a school before. You know what an eraser is, right? Charlotte asked me. I admit I was feeling so nervous that I didn't know what to say or do except look at the floor. Hey, can you talk, asked Jack Will. Yeah, I nodded. I still really hadn't looked at any of them yet. Not directly. That was Wonder, written by my guest RJ Palacio and narrated by Kate Rudd. Nick Podell and Diana Steele. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss us fortnightly. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Let's just briefly go back over Julian in both books and why was it important for Julian to be part of White Bird for you? Well, I wanted to give Julian a chance to, if not exonerate himself from from, from his behavior in, in wonder, at least to be able to tell his story in a way that um, gave him a little bit more depth. So I explored his story in the Julian chapter, which was a subsequent novella to Wonder, a companion book. Julian's grandmother is the one who I think realizes that her grandson is on the wrong path here. Like if somebody doesn't right that ship quickly, that he will, you know, may grow and, and not be a great person. So, in fact, that's what uh, inspires her to finally share her story about being a young Jewish girl, a Holocaust survivor with um, Julian. And it's through that story that I think that Julian finally has an epiphany. He finally has that moment of self-awareness that until then he had just never had, where he sees in hearing her story, where there's a there's a bully in her story and there's a good kid in her story. And, and he finally sees himself in the context of Augie Pullman's story. And he realizes that he's the bad guy in someone else's story. So he appears in Whitebird in the beginning. Whitebird starts with uh, present day Julian FaceTiming his grandmare and saying, hey, grandmare, can you tell me that story again? I'm doing a project in school. And and she reluctantly sort of rehashes that whole story. And so the, the bulk of the book is her story, but it does start out in the present. And then it ends, it bookends back in the present day with Julian. And I really wanted to come full circle with Julian and uh, and decides that he's he's never going to let the world forget what happened to his grandmother. What? RJ, do you think is the most powerful generator of empathy? Wow, you ask amazing questions. This might not be the right answer, but I think storytelling is um, certainly, I, I remember my mother told me a lot of stories when I was young. And it's through those stories that I felt the desire to to do the right thing. It's through books that I read when I was young that I decided kind of the kind of person I wanted to be. I decided who I liked in terms of the characters and novels, who, who was heroic to me, who inspired me. Storytelling is a, just a great vehicle for being able to have people live in other people's shoes and decide who they want to be. Mm. What about the feedback that shows that someone did 
understand more about other people. I mean, all the emails I have not answered <laughs> and all the letters you I have couldn't. not How could answered. You? I can't. And, no. and I feel badly. Uh, I, I, to do that, I'd have to sort of hire an assistant and become sort of a, a, a company. And I don't want to do that. So unfortunately, there are thousands of emails that... Um, but what I, a great source of comfort to you to know that if you believe that storytelling is the the most kind of powerful generator of empathy, that you've done that. I hope I live for a very, very long time. Uh, and I hope I create a whole bunch of other things in my life. But um, Not so many other graphic novels. But, <laughs> not so. but I mean, if if wonder is what there is, it's, it's not a bad legacy to be, you know, known for and remembered for, you know, the idea that, this book has has inspired kids to be want to want to be kinder to one another. And again, it seems like such a simple thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's kind of nice. Yeah, Whitebird has been optioned by Lionsgate. Mm-hmm. Of course, the same um, huge production company that made uh, Wonder. Where are we at in that process now? Then it's actually um, it's been purchased outright. So that means um, you know an option is where. Basically, a production company um, says, you know, we're thinking about making this into a movie. But um, when they when they actually buy it, it means that they really, really want to make the movie. So I think we're a little farther ahead. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will definitely be made. And um, Are casting conversations happening? Not yet, right, but okay. screenwriters and director conversations have happened already, and and um, and then casting will will come later. But we've had some good discussions about. Um, we, we're all on the same page about the kind of movie we we want to make, um, and uh, and it's really exciting because uh, with Wonder, I was an executive producer, but really all that meant was. They would kind of very politely inform me about the decisions that they made. Well, they asked you about the colour of a sofa. I mean, these yeah, are big well, they, details. Exa- I mean, yeah, details like that. And, and it was great. And, and you know, I didn't know what I was doing, so so it was wonderful. But this time I, I definitely, um, you know, to quote a, a Hamilton song, I, I wanted to be in the room where it happened. You know, I wanted to right. sort of be part of the – not that they have to listen and, and do what I say, but I at least wanted to be able to have – an opinion and and a voice and and then we could all make the decision together about certain basic things and so now I, mm. I'm hoping that 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 will be the case I think it will be. That's an interesting distinction between essentially being a dictator, which is what creating something like that <laughs> yeah, well, is, to, to to being in a in a democracy where there's so many other ideas. Well, I've been in. spoiled because as hard as that graphic novel was, in a way, if you think about it, and if it is a movie. And and it's a, a movie in which um, I, as the, the cinematographer, got to decide, you know, how to shoot it, what angles to shoot from, and and whether this would be a one shot or a two shot. And I was a set decorator, and I was the, you know, the uh, I wrote the dialogue, the screenplay, um, costume designer, lighting director. You know, in a way, doing the graphic novel was, as I said, it was like visualizing that movie that was in my head. So um, so I've been a little spoiled by, 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 by being the dictator of my own graphic novel. Um, every, so. every writer is a dictator, I know, right? You don't I write know, by committee, I, do you? It's, it's, no, you don't. Yeah. You and really don't want you. to. Right, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, look, RJ, it's been such a pleasure 
to talk to you today. And Whitebird is really, really beautiful. I, I have to say that there are a few moments as a man in his 40s where mm. I, I'm sure I had something in my eye when I was uh, <laughs> reading it, <laughs> I'm sure. You. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. From the best-selling children's author Robin Stevens comes the new book in her Murder Most Unladylike series. In Top Marks for Murder, all is not well at the school in which two young detectives, Daisy and Hazel, attend after they witness a shocking incident. I'm writing in this new casebook because death has come to Deep Dean once again. I am not quite sure why I am so surprised, but I am. Perhaps it is because lightning, lightning in this case being dead bodies, is not meant to strike twice, let alone several times, in the same place. Perhaps it is because the murder has happened at a time when we all have been ordered to be on our best behaviour, in starched and pressed dresses, as good and polite and law-abiding as schoolgirls can be. The audiobook is narrated by Katie Lung, best known for her role as Cho Chang in the Harry Potter films, and is available to download now.